From KUT News and the Texas Tribune, this is The Ticket. We demand our liberty. That American dream is pivotal for the future of our country. Americans have come back from some pretty tough economic times. But we can and must do better. And we are going to make our country great again. I'm Jay Root. And I'm Ben Philpot. Today on the show, the polls are telling us Donald Trump is going to lose. So, of course, Trump and his surrogates have started pushing theories on why the polls are wrong. So we'll... Wrong. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> they're <laughs> wrong. <laughs> on why the polls are wrong. So we'll talk with political researcher and pollster Stefan Hankin to break down the possibility of a bad polling year. And speaking of polls, it looks like we've got another Texas poll out this week. Jay and I are going to talk to our favorite pollster, UT Austin's Jim Henson, to see whether the race has continued to tighten. Uh, But first, Jay, let me ask you about the political strategy of leaving the campaign trail to attend a grand opening of a hotel that you built in a city that only has three electoral votes and you're not going to win any of those votes. Uh, Obviously talking about Trump opening up a new hotel in Washington, D.C., which according to 538.com, he has a 0.1% chance, I think, of winning Washington, D.C. and it's three votes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, I don't think he's going to be winning the District of Columbia, but... You know, is he really ever leaving the campaign trail? I mean, when he went to Scotland, um, tried for open a golf resort right. there. I mean, you know, it, it it becomes a campaign event. So um, I don't, uh, you know, everywhere he goes or whatever it is he does, um, it's the campaign. And so um, I think that you know, technically, yes, this is not a campaign event, but everything that Donald Trump does is a campaign event. Well, and it does definitely seem to play along with the overall narrative of his campaign, which has not been focused on the things we've seen in a modern campaign, micro-targeting, you know, going to very specific places to maximize the voters that you know are there that would most likely vote for a candidate like you. Um, Everything has essentially been, this is a big, gigantic national campaign. Uh, Even during the primaries, it, you know, yes, he was campaigning in Iowa, but you absolutely felt like he was talking to every other Republican primary voter across the country on every single one of his stops. Yeah, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill, I think, was the one who popularized the phrase, all politics is local. And I think that has not been true for quite a long time in the age of social media and instant video and and live streams and Facebook Live and all of that. Um, You know, what you say in Iowa is immediately available to anyone anywhere else. And um, uh, so I, I don't think politics is local anymore, I think. And I think this is this election has been the most nationalized election that I've ever seen. For sure. Do you think, though, that we're going if let's play out the string here, if Trump ends up losing and loses, uh, even if it's close in some of the really important swing states, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, although recent polling shows that Pennsylvania doesn't appear to be close. um, Do you think that will push back against the idea of you can't just have, you know, eight events in Florida and assume that Ohio voters are going to turn out? Well, I th- look, I think it matters that you're in the state, that you campaign in, in a state. Um, 
Uh, so to that extent, I mean, there is a local component, you know, to all of this. I mean, you, you, you go there and then you, you're, you're covered by the local newspaper and then they, they think that, you know, you care about them and all of that. And you talk about the issues that, you know, the, the way people vote has something to do with the, the local issues and issues that are important, whether it's, you know, to Cuban American voters or, uh, you know, they have so many different, uh, cultures, uh, of, of Hispanics. I mean, you have uh, Puerto Rican Americans, right. Puerto Rican voters. They are Americans, um, but you yeah. have <laughs> um, you have uh, you know so many different slices of the electorate, and so I, <clears throat> I do definitely think that matters. So I don't, I, you know, I think that in that sense, the campaigning has, you know, in, in these swing states, is still like it always has been. I mean, you have to show up and you have to get out the vote and do all of those things, but. Donald Trump is just a phenom yep. anywhere he goes. And so just he, um, if he has some event in, in Washington, D.C., I'm guessing it's not just the beat reporter on the hotel beat, well, that's the, hotel, <laughs> hotel, the new hotel beat that's going to be at his event as ribbon cutting. Well, you know, and you, you mentioned this just, just a second ago, maybe it is the idea of he can be anywhere and, and be campaigning then in any state. I mean, every state will see him doing the campaigning, but if you're going to do that, you have to follow up with a maybe an even more sophisticated get-out-the-vote ground game in some of these states. And maybe that's where, you know, when the autopsy is written, if Donald Trump ends up losing, we're going to see that, that there was a real failure. Yes, you know, he can be in Washington, D.C. and get his voters in Ohio excited, but if there was not a uh, uh, machinery on the ground to make sure that people then followed up and went to the polls, um, which, it, again, it doesn't appear that he spent a ton of money on that effort, not like we've seen in other campaigns, um, then maybe that's where his failing is going to be. Absolutely. I, you know, you, you can't, particularly in these close, uh, you know, when it's close, uh, like Ohio was, uh, has been in, in recent presidential elections, that get out the vote effort becomes so, so important, you know, a hundred thousand votes or, you know, that it can totally be done, be achieved by having an aggressive ground game. Why do we think Donald Trump is losing? Well, it's because Hillary Clinton appears to have good size leads in enough states to give her more than 270 electoral votes. But what if the polls are wrong? Well, Donald Trump and his campaign have started sowing the seeds of doubt. But are their arguments plausible? Joining us to break down those arguments is Stefan Hankin, founder and president of Lincoln Park Strategies, a political research firm. Hey, Stefan. How's it going? Thanks so much for joining us. It seems like he's got a couple of arguments here, and uh, you wrote a good article on this as well. But um, let's maybe start with the people who are... Uh, Trump, one of his first argument is uh, people are just, uh, uh, they're embarrassed or ashamed to tell a pollster, a human pollster, instead of a, you know, robocall, uh, uh, that they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, do the numbers work on that? Uh, no, and I, it's, I think, also an interesting argument that he's admitting that people don't want to admit that they're voting for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but That's a whole no, separate I mean, podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole. I guess a whole other topic. But you know, there's there's nothing in the data that is showing that that this is is the case. I mean, you know, and in what what we generally tend to tell clients is, you know, don't worry less about the the actual numbers. Like, you know, is a candidate up by eight to six? But 
if every single poll is showing one candidate up, like that candidate's going to win that state. Uh, or, you know, that is the, the highest probability, the most likely thing to happen. Um, and, you know, if this sort of this, you know, oh, the, the silent voter who isn't willing to admit it existed, we'd be picking it up somewhere, right? You know, like there, there would be polls out there showing Trump up where even if it was, you know, is being described as an outlier, like it would, but those, those polls aren't really existing in most of these, uh, most of these swing states. And, you know, when we look at, at the data, and, you know, this is going back to a national poll from a few months ago, but we were looking at both registered and likely voters compared to non-registered voters and people who said they weren't going to vote. And there's really no big group of people who are just sort of hiding in the shadows, just waiting uh, to, to come out and, and, and vote for Trump. Like the, the non-voters and the unregistered voters typically look like the, the voters generally do. I mean, they're a little bit more I'll call it, you know, in, uh, less engaged, a little bit more on the sort of the moderate end of the political spectrum, which all generally tends to make sense. But, you know, there's no actual data point that I've seen that points to any kind of mass number of people who are going to come out on Election Day and vote for Donald Trump that aren't admitting that in the polls. Stefan, we do have uh, sort of history that suggests something like this can happen, and people call it the Bradley effect, although... I think in this case it would be uh, sort of known as a reverse Bradley effect. But can you just tell us, give us a little background, what is the Bradley effect? What does that mean when people say that? Yeah, so this is in California um, and in 1982, um, where uh, Tom Bradley, who was African-American, uh, mayor of Los Angeles, was running for governor of California. And the polling... Uh, in 1982, predicted that he was going to win, uh, but then he ended up losing to the Republican um, candidate that year. So, and then what the theory was is that uh, this was that people weren't, uh, and they they would say that they wanted to, that they were willing to vote for an African American candidate, and then when it came time to actually voting in, in the privacy of the voting booth, then people didn't vote for the African American. Now. There's certainly been a lot of uh, discussion over the years whether this was real or not. And, you know, people who are on the campaign say that they saw the polling moving away from them in the last few weeks. But, you know, now we have this Bradley effect that, that we talk about. So, you know, in this case, it would be, as you sort of said, it's sort of like the reverse, where it's not people saying that they're going to vote for Trump and then, and then shying away. But he's arguing that the, the opposite is going to happen. And, you know, and again, it, there's just nothing in the data that, that points to the, that this is sort of brewing out there or this is happening. And, you know, I mean, even when we look back at the primary elections, you know, Trump tended to get about what the polling said, um, you know, within, within a point or two. Uh, he, so even un, no even under, the he even underperformed some too, didn't he? He did. He did. And, you know, so it, it, so there wasn't this like, oh, you know, Trump's polling at 15 and then all of a sudden got like 40 percent in the election. And, you know, what happened there? Uh, everything kind of, you know, happened about the way that uh, that that people sort of had had predicted in general. Um, but so it just really, there, you know, again, like, I guess it's, you know, it's a theory, uh, but but we're just not seeing anything that actually points to this you know, happening or really being able, like really being true that there's actual like data pointing to this, to this fact, um, you know, sort of regardless of what they say, it's just, it just doesn't seem like there's any there there. 
What about, uh, you know, this is another line that uh, Trump is using now on the campaign trail. Uh, He's pointing to this one email from the WikiLeaks that uh, has come out with uh, John Podesta telling someone or someone on his staff telling a Democratic pollster that they needed to oversample uh, Hispanics in a certain area. Um, And they just kind of blankly point to that and say, see, the polls are skewed because they're oversampling in a specific area. Um, I guess before we get to what is wrong with that uh, interpretation, or at least based on what I've read, what's wrong with that interpretation, can you just talk a little bit about what oversampling is and why pollsters do it? Sure. Can I take two minutes to bang my head against the wall for a little while? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, okay. So an oversample is, I mean, basically as it sort of sounds, you are calling more of one group than, than you would for a proportional, um, for a proportional poll. And then the reason you do this is because you're, you're interested in, in what the results are, but you're not going to get enough of, of that group to really look at with a statistical significance. So let's just say, you know, you're calling a thousand people and Hispanics are going to make up 10%. So there's a hundred of them. And you look at that and you say, well, with 100 people, my margin of error is something like seven to eight points, something in there. So basically any result that comes back, it's, you know, there's a pretty large range of where that number could, could lie. So, you know, so now we know, you know, Hispanics are going to be incredibly important to this state. Uh, but so we want to talk to more of them. And so that we can look at that group specifically and figure out what's going on. So we might call 500 of them. But when you are reporting the results as a whole, so like this is what's happening in Florida or Texas or whatever, whatever state you're polling, those 500 Hispanics are what we call downweighted to the 100 that they should be for a proportional sample. So the fact that there are extra interviews there are not affecting the overall results. It's just allowing the pollsters and the researchers to look at that group and with a st- statistical significance. And, you know, what's just so frustrating about this is the fact that his campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, is a pollster and like, you know, that, that she's sort of like not that she's allowing this line to happen, even though she knows full well, like what that this is a sound research methodology that everyone does, you know, political, corporate, everywhere else when there are key subgroups that you want to be able to look at. Yeah, something that we would assume she's done in all the in, in at least some of the different polls she's run in her career. I would guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she was quoted as saying that there was uh there were more people who were for Trump than were picked up in the polls and as you said has has allowed this narrative to continue. Um and and of course we saw in uh the last election in 2012 there were a lot of people who thought the same thing was happening with Romney, that, that the polls were all wrong and that they were rigged, that the polls were rigged in favor uh, yeah. of Romney. But um, would would there be any way to, to, to rig? I mean, could, could people rig polls? Can you rig polls? Uh, an individual poll? Sure. Like, you know, like, if you really wanted to, I'm not, you know, again, I don't know why you would ever do this um, other than just to get a false narrative out there. But, you know, if you want to show Donald Trump winning and you just call Republicans like, hey, look, I have a poll that shows, you know, Donald Donald Trump winning in, in Florida. Um, but you, know, you just leave out the fact that you only called called Republicans. But, you know, it real, that that 
it makes no sense from from any kind of like standpoint. But then again, like, could you skew every single poll? Like, I, it, it would be nearly impossible to get every single you know pollster on board. Whether you know news newspaper pollsters, uh, you know internal pollsters who are doing stuff for campaigns, you know, to all do the exact same thing. Because again, we're seeing these trends in in most of these states where you know for the most part, like you know, Clinton is up in all the current polls in Florida and. North Carolina and Ohio, you know, Trump is up in all polls I've seen coming out of Texas. And, um, and, you know, so it's, it's just like, you're seeing that, that trend again, you know, the differences in how, how much he's up by, or, you know, or, or she's up by, but we're seeing these, these sorts of trends. And, you know, in any state where you see Trump up in a couple of polls and Clinton up in a couple of polls is actually a true swing state. Like, and now that's what we saw in 2012, where Florida was the one state that was showing Romney up in some polls, Obama up in some polls. And that was a true swing state. And obviously that came down to like, you know, a few, like not even a, I don't think the difference was even a percentage point, but, you know, so, so just to be able to sort of skew every single poll would, would be, a Herculean effort, and it would have to be done by the Democratic Party, who is, and I will just say this publicly, is incapable of that kind of coordination <laughs> uh, to, to to make that happen. And you know, it, it, again, it's like there's just too many people out there doing polls where everything could be, you know, thrown off. Now, you know, the one thing I will say is, and this typically happens, you know, these days where every we tend to if anything i think the polls are actually probably skewed against the republican camp slightly not enough to like really change the results drastically but in the polls i've seen you know the i would i would argue that the hispanic proportion in the polls is actually a little bit lower than it should be same thing with african americans whites are a little bit higher um and you know and we'll end up seeing what the turnout looks like but a lot of pollsters out there especially the public ones are viewing this as the electorate is looking exactly like 2012 and that's never happened before right? you know that the the white share of the vote has continued to drop by about two to three points every single presidential election um and i i don't imagine that this is going to be the first year that that stops so if anything i would argue that the polls might be slightly skewed in the republicans favor just slightly um but but certainly not again not seeing anything anywhere in any data point that's showing any kind of mass conspiracy to show a, a picture that's not true. I think there was actually a poll today by Bloomberg that showed Trump up a point or two in Florida. But would there be any would there be any benefit to a candidate to claim in terms of this election? I mean, I can see how Trump might be setting the stage for something he would do after an election by saying that the polls are rigged or that the media is rigged or that the whole system is rigged against him. But does it does it is there any evidence that that actually helps you motivate your base or does that does that do anything for you? I guess I'll see uh, I'll concede the argument that, oh, you know, he just wants to get his base or make sure they don't get too depressed and be like, oh, it's over. I don't even need to go out and vote. Voting patterns are pretty consistent on the presidential years. It's the it's the non-presidential years that that tend to have a, a much bigger variation. So there's I've never seen anything definitive that says oh like all of a sudden base voters are not going to turn out if they think that the election's over. But you know every vote can count in a in a state like Florida, which is likely to be close. Um, you know 
if a couple thousand people decide to not show up because they think, you know, Trump can't win and they were going to vote for Trump, obviously, you know, that can that could make a difference. Um, but, you know, I'd like to see it based on something a little bit more credible than arguing about, you know, skewed polls, oversamples and all this other nonsense. And again, especially with the pollster on in charge of his campaign, it's uh, as a pollster, find it very, uh, very depressing. You know, the one other argument that I've heard from Trump and some of his surrogates, uh, they all point to the Brexit polling uh, and saying, you know, oh, hey, look, uh, a month before that vote, uh, people were saying that that uh, England was going to stay in the European Union and see th- those polls were wrong. Therefore, my polls are wrong. Um, I guess first, you know, let's let's not kind of let's dispel with the idea that because one poll in another part of the world was wrong, that therefore polls in the United States are wrong. But what were the, do you know what the Brexit polls were doing? And was there, has there been any analysis afterwards as to why things appeared to be a little off uh, heading into election day? Yeah. So, you know, here, here he's kind of, he's taking something that's it's sort of like that, like it's technically true, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't paint the full picture. So a month out, it's, it's a hundred percent true that polls are showing that Brexit was likely to fail. Right. Yes. That they were going to stay in the union. I have that, yes. <laughs> have the, have the, what the yes and no vote was uh, correct there. So that is true. But, you know, again, remembering that polls are, you know, they all snapshot in time, right? This is what's happening right now. So if they had held the election a month out uh, or a month earlier in England, it is the likely outcome would have been that the UK would have was going to stay in the European Union. But then there was a whole other month, you know, from that time. And then what we saw in the polling in England uh, leading up to the vote was, you know, in the week before the election, there were like two polls that had yes winning and two polls that had no winning. And like I said before, when you see that, like, that's just a pure toss up. And everyone had it like just about 50, you know, like it was like 49, 51. Like no one had either side with any kind of major um, advantage. So going into the election, basically the polls were saying this thing's going to be close and we don't, you know, we, we're not we can't really say exactly who's, who's going to be winning. And, you know, so that's just not the case here yet. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're less than two weeks out. So we'll see what happens in the polls over the next two weeks. Uh, I mean, early voting, voting started and, um, you know, in general, we haven't seen massive shifts in this country um, this close to the election. It could still happen. Um, but, you know, that's what to keep an eye out for. So, you know, you mentioned that Bloomberg poll that just came out so, you know, now I would say, OK, you know, if, if we see another poll come out of Florida that has Trump up now, it's like, OK, you know, Florida's back in the toss up category. If we're seeing some polls showing one candidate up and, and other polls showing the other candidate up means it's going to be close, uh, which is not shocking for Florida. Um, but if you're seeing a state where, you know, Trump's up in the last five polls, he's probably going to win that one. Clinton's up in the last five polls. She's probably going to win that one. And, you know, in the, the Brexit example is just. There's so many better examples out there that they could be using, um, like Eric Cantor in Virginia, where his polling had him winning. You know, he ended up losing by like 20, um, which I think is, would be a much better argument if you're going to like if you're going to disparage polling and say, oh, look, it could be wrong. Like that was a much better example because, they, you know, they just they had their view on the electorate completely wrong. And, uh, you know, all these people who they didn't expect to turn out turned out to vote and Eric Cantor lost. Uh, which I think is a much better example to use if you're making this argument than Brexit, where the polling was actually painted, you know, a pretty accurate picture of what was going to happen. You know, this is going to be close. 
political researcher and pollster Stefan Hankin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So maybe the polls are right. Democrats in Texas certainly hope they are, because over the past month, a handful of them have said Texas, yes, the state of Texas, could be a toss-up. Now we've got another poll out giving us a peek at the purpling of Texas. Jim Henson directs the Texas Politics Project at UT Austin and ran this latest poll. Jim, thanks for joining us. As always, happy to be here, guys. What is going on in Texas? Well, that's a that's a complicated question. I'll start <laughs> I'll start by saying what's going on in the poll we just released. Um, so we were in the field October 14th to the 23rd for the UT Texas Tribune poll and found uh, Donald Trump leading 45 to Hillary Clinton's 42 with Gary Johnson at seven, Jill Stein at two, and five percent uh, saying someone else or you know otherwise. Um, so what's going on? What's going on is we're seeing a, a remarkably consistent set of polling over about the last three to four weeks with Trump ahead by three or four points, um, which you know feels like Clinton is ahead compared to what we've seen <laughs> in Texas as re- in recent cycles. Um, yes, not losing by double digits is a victory for Democrats, I think. Well, I mean, I think a lot of them feel that way. And there's, you know, there's an argument for that if that's, if that's what it winds up looking like on election day. Now, whether that's the case, we'll see. I think there, there are different scenarios you can play out. But certainly, I think that we've seen the gap tighten. I think that's just incontrovertible now. And I think there's a, there's a question about you know, what what changes we might see between the last few weeks and the next, you know, 10 days, two weeks as election day nears. It looks like, I'm, I'm fascinated by this figure, someone else, 5%, and of course the uh, third party candidates, uh, the Libertarian and the Green Party candidates together have 9%. So that's 14 points right there. I mean, Hillary Clinton it would have gotten 42 probably uh regardless is that is that not i mean that's about where she would end that's her base right well you know in it's, a presidential it's, election it's probably it's probably in the ballpark so i mean i i think as we as we look at this going forward just to speak semi directly to you know what the where all those other votes go or if they don't go or what what's going on with that it seems to me there's kind of three basic ways that we can parse out the the possible direction moving forward in all this one is we see what we the typical patterns you know we see the expected which is um on election day the people that that vote for gary sanders defect in large numbers and i think we've talked about this in this podcast before that sanders was a uh, uh, gary johnson gary was, johnson yeah right. gary sorry gary johnson was enjoying you know numbers in this range maybe even a little higher in 2012 wound up with about 1.1 percent on election day now, this is a different cycle, and I think it's fair to suggest that given signs of Republican reluctance, shall we say, to really fully embrace Donald Trump, that Johnson might do a little bit better in this cycle. Nonetheless, we would expect that number to go down significantly, and we would expect most of those votes to go toward uh, the Republican candidate at the top of the ticket. Similarly, with the someone else's or the undecideds, we also expect those to break pretty decisively in a Republican direction. A lot of those are going to be independents. Independents in this poll and elsewhere uh, skew in a very conservative direction. So looking at that and thinking about what it looks like going forward, the the standard proceed, you know, the standard kind of assumption scenario is that 
Trump winds up winning and probably by a few points more than have been ind indicated in the last round of polling. Now, the other kind of less typical scenario might say this. This is unusual in, certain in a lot of ways. Uh, the Clinton supporters, as indicated in a lot of other things that we're seeing in this poll and elsewhere, are more unified than the Trump supporters. And d explain why you say that. Well, because when we look at things like, do, do you expect uh, Hillary Clinton to be, we do you expect either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump to be somewhere on the range from a, uh, you know, terrific president to a terrible president? There are a lot more people expecting among the Democrats. There's a lot more. There are a lot more people that expect Hillary Clinton to be a great or very good president in the range of over seventy percent. That same response among Republicans is only a little over 50%. So intensity of support. Is intensity of support and expectations and, you know, simply overall embrace of the candidates. Um, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's favorable ratings among Democrats are higher than Donald Trump's favorable ratings among Republicans. About 30% of Republicans have an unfavorable view of Trump. So in another scenario, we might expect that, in fact, you're going to have more Democratic enthusiasm. You're going to have a lot of Republicans who are reluctant to vote in an electoral environment in which there's not a lot else going on. I mean, we're not in Ohio or Florida or Nevada. I don't know if you guys saw the, the James Homan piece in the Washington Post 202 a couple of days ago where they spent a day with the Harry Reid turnout machine in Nevada. And it's just a completely different universe of activation and and engagement, and the Republicans are doing a lot there too. Yeah, I think our just, highest our highest statewide here is uh, railroad commissioner. Right. You know, and you're just <laughs> not a lot of you know, and, and even farther down the ballot, as we all know, there's just not a lot. Of, there are not a lot of competitive legislative races. There's just there's less reason for Republicans that have reservations to show up and vote. And if you're reluctant to vote for Trump, but you're almost certainly not going to vote for Clinton, which is still the case with most Republicans. Are you going to show up and not vote at the presidential level, but then vote for a bunch of other people, you know, so you can vote for a bunch of other races that you don't know anything about? It's a, it's potentially a problem. So in the second scenario, you see, you know, Clinton, these numbers holding and, and perhaps Larry Clinton finishing even a little closer. And then there's a third X factor scenario where those, those conditions are really more pronounced than we can tell right now. And, you know, maybe Hillary Clinton wins. I, I still think that's unlikely given the consistent leads in the polls, but those polls are not so big that those leads are not so big that you could dismiss it out of hand. And I wanted to kind of point, maybe put a little exclamation point on the idea of how well Hillary is doing um, in this, in, in these polls that we've seen so far, a three point race, two or three polls that have now set a three point race. But she's at 42%. Where was, and I should have looked this up before we came in here, where was Wendy Davis in running for governor in uh, in 14? Okay. Was she was she 40%? Was she, she lost by what, 19 or 20 yeah. points? 20 points, a little a little over 20 points. And I, 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 she, so uh, she may have been 39 then. No, she wasn't at 30. She ended up at like 32 or something like that. Uh, no, it wasn't, because, no, it wasn't no, because that the low, governor had but... over 50, and that would have been like a 25 or so or more point swing. Yeah, she finished in the high 30s, I think. So maybe 38. So let's say, and Jay's going to look it up here and correct us. Me, yeah, so. I didn't have my phone with me. I was going to do an Evan Smith and look it up while you were talking. Um, but uh, <laughs> I turned mine off to be a good citizen. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I have to sit here and look ignorant or like I don't remember I'm gonna, anything. <laughs> I'm going to get a phone call from Evan on this one. Um, but I think, yeah, so let's say she was at 38%. So that was seen as a miserable, horrible, no good, very bad election for Democrats. Now we're saying Hillary Clinton is maybe about four percentage points above yeah. that, and it's all of a sudden the state's going purple. Well, and that's, but, that's not correct. Well, I think, there, yeah, I mean, two things about that. One is uh, the off-year elections, the gubernatorial elections, the composition of the electorate is just different than a yeah. presidential election. Um, you know, I, I think – but we are we're talking about the Republican coming down to earth as opposed to the Democrat yeah. getting in and, a rocket and, ship. And your and your point is I mean, I think your point is well taken in that, you know, I mean it's a little at odds, I guess, with the when the introduction to the segment. I, you know, it's still a little early to talk, I think. <laughs> we're just about, trying to get people to listen. <laughs> about about purpling. I mean, I think this may be a little bit less of a purpling of the electorate and a little bit more of the the black and blueing of right. the presidential candidate in Texas this round. Um you know, the underlying indicators are that we, you know, we still have a very conservative Republican electorate, um, but we have a Republican electorate that is, you know, divided in response to the to the person at the top of the ticket, doesn't have a lot of other motivating factors in an election. And you have, on the other hand, a, a Democratic electorate that for all, you know, we've heard about the divisions in the Republican Party and how divisive the primary was and how unpopular she is. She's still, you know, at this moment, she has brought, she has brought Republicans or she's brought Democrats together. I think she's had some help from her opposition in this, um, without a doubt, but the, you know, so now it really comes down, I think, given the polarization in the electorate and the polarized views, and particularly the intensely negative views of Hillary Clinton among Republicans, we're now looking at a, at a question of turnout. Well, we I have do. the number, yeah, by the way. The Wendy number. Davis uh, had got 39% of the oh, vote. 30, so you, okay. so I, I, I had remembered Gary Morrow, who got 31% of the vote in, 90, <laughs> in 1998 against George W. Bush. And I covered that election, actually. And I, I, I remembered writing that it, it, uh, Wendy Davis's performance was the worst since Gary Morrow, but it was considerably better. But if you look at what the base is, you know, she's at 42%. That's what Bill Clinton got in 1992. It's about 42%, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, know, it's 40, whatever. Well, I mean, it's also, but it's a, it's a, it's a very, I mean, I think, you know, it's a very different electorate right now. Um, So we'll see. I mean, I, I I suspect, you know, again, who knows, but my suspicion is, and I could be all wet about this, is that we will see, you know, I think I think you're right, Jay, to focus on that 14% that are of the non, non-Clinton, non-Trump share of the vote. And you have to wonder how much of that winds up, you know, in third party, in the hands of third party candidates. And if not, what the remainder is and how it breaks and add those on. Um, you know, I could see both of these numbers being a little bit higher, you know, uh, a 49, you know, 43, uh, Something like that. Trump win. Yeah, with a Trump win, 48, 43, you know, where Trump Mm -hmm. maybe doesn't quite make 50% or just barely breaks it. You know, Clinton and uh, Clinton outperforms recent Democratic, you know, certainly, you know, recent Democratic performances or even, you know, in the modern age by a point or two seems about in the ballpark, but, you know. We could be back here and you guys could be playing this back for me and me slamming my head on the on the table or something. I, well, know. not that this isn't mind-blowing enough, but is there anything else in there, either Ted Cruz, down ballot, anything else you found in here that surprised you or was um, noteworthy? 
You know, I, I think we found a lot of things that are going to have to wait till subsequent things. So I'll, you know, ask you guys, maybe I'll just, embargo, I'll try uh, to embargo, tease you yeah. guys to have <laughs> okay. me. But we, we asked a lot of questions on this poll about some, about, on this poll about issues and about what else is going on in the electorate. Some, some, some of which are related to the national election to get a sense of what might be feeding that. But some of them are also about things that are on the legislative agenda, given some of the pronouncements from some of the right. leadership. So, As our session begins in January. Yeah, and I, I, don't, know, I don't know what the fate of this podcast is after <laughs> November. Maybe we'll just We don't meet, either. Maybe we'll just meet across the street at the hole in the wall or something. <laughs> well, that would be an it. exceptional way to do this. Uh, one more thing before you go. Uh, we've seen uh, you know a couple of days of early voting totals in several states uh, across the country and, of course, here in Texas. In Texas, the numbers are double of what we had the first couple of days of early voting in 2012. Uh, uh, many of the largest counties in the state are setting records for day of single day early voting totals. Um, but I, you know, you hear different pundits and political strategists across the country trying to say what that means. And I know, you know, I guess on a base level, you know, voter increase in El Paso or voter increase in Austin is probably going to be at the benefit of the Democratic candidate. Um, voting increase in Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth here in Texas, you know, probably met the benefit to a Republican candidate. Um, but where, where are people grabbing that kind of tenuous relationship when they say this means X, this is good or bad for candidates? Well, X? you know, I, I think definitive pronouncements on that if in some global way are probably being grabbed from some orifice <laughs> of their body. Um <laughs> We but, can say that this isn't the radio, <laughs> but 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 I think generally, I mean, but that's just I say that because it, it's hard to draw conclusions from that, particularly after a day of data. I mean, right. and, you know, for one thing, these things are very subject to localized effects. So you look at the Texas numbers, and I haven't looked at the first two days, but I looked at the top, you know, thirteen, fourteen counties reported by the Secretary of State, compared them to last year, and. You're seeing big increases in large Democratic, you know, large areas that are for Texas Democratic strongholds, Dallas County, you mentioned El Paso, but you're seeing smaller, but still pretty big, you know, in the range of 20 to 40% increases in the smaller, but more numerous color counties where we also know there are a lot of Republicans calling County, um, places like that. So I, I think it's a little, I think it's a little too soon to tell. Um, I think we're seeing indications in both directions. Um, I think if you're looking for something that seems like a little bit of a change in pattern, if you're a Democrat, you're probably reasonably heartened to look at the large urban counties, to look at the large urban counties and see some of the biggest increases because all things being equal, that's pretty good for you. But again, there are you know, there are different dynamics at work in a lot of those places. Harris County, there are a lot of intense local races. I think the Democrats are working very hard there because they there's blood in the water. Yeah, I, I think Harris is <laughs> you know, going to be so interesting. I'm going to be watching Harris County election. Yeah, that's night. around uh, that's around Houston for those of us not in Texas listening. Big, right biggest in. county and one of the biggest counties in the country, and um, where Democrats are hoping to do in Harris what they did in Dallas in in, in the mid 2000s, which is flip the county from Republican right. to Democrat. And right now it's more it's purplish, but I mean they, yeah. they've got judge races. I mean those judge those those countywide elected officials. If that flips, then you know that could flip for a long time. And there's and there's money. There's a lot of money going into those races. And and Harris was already close to the, in the in the presidential election. Harris was you know essentially tied. 
I mean, it was in 2012. Yeah, 2012 in the presidential election. And, you know, I think that was, you know, the difference of, you know, tenths of a percent or something. So, so, you know, in, in essence, I don't, you know, I don't know. And I don't, I don't really see how anybody could make very global assumptions about this, very geographically specific. Um, But again, in Texas, it's hard to, if if you're looking at the polling numbers and you're looking at these increases in the urban areas, they're, they're, they're mutually reinforcing. They make you probably trust the poll numbers a little more. And uh, again, of course, just so everyone understands, you know, early voting, these are not uh, like you're voting in your precinct. So you don't know even where the people right. live. So, you know, obviously in Austin, there are parts that uh, tend to vote more Republican. They could certainly be voting in a precinct or not in precinct, but at an early voting location around a Democratic neighborhood. Right. You just wouldn't know. But Yeah, you're making pretty broad level you know, conclusions about, about demographics that are cut, you know, at the county level. So. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Jim Henson, pollster at UT Austin, director of the Texas Politics Project. Thanks again for coming in and uh, setting us straight. <laughs> Always fun. <laughs> That's it this week from The Ticket. We're almost done, folks. Just hang on. Remember, you can find all of our episodes and subscribe to us by going to theticket2016.com. And please remember to leave us a review on iTunes if you can. We've only got a couple of episodes left. I think this one that we just had was really a good one and a good example of some of the stuff that's out there. So go check it out. We really want to thank everyone who's been listening to us over this last year and a half. I can't believe it's been that long. We've had a great time exploring different election topics and talking with some very interesting people. The Ticket is a co-production of KUT News and the Texas Tribune. KUT News Managing Editor Matt Largy has been editing us all this time. Thanks so much, Matt. And, of course, thanks to the author of our great theme music, Ben Root. And thanks to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.